me, my teammates are the heroes of my story because, um, you know, they were able to be the role models for other straight men and allies to understand that, um, you know, saying no to homophobia doesn't make you less of a man. episode 17 of the Outfield Podcast. This is a bit of a out-of-left-field kind of show, but you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, we focused a lot on amazing athletes from all over the world, and today we're going down under because you're going to hear why we're going down under in just a second. I would like to introduce somebody very incredible who has run for elected office, has been incredibly influential in helping LGBTQ athletes in Australia. He played Australian rules football. He's done all of that, and he's only 32. Welcome, Jason Ball, to the show. Jason, how are you doing? Hey, Matt. I'm doing great, thank you. It is incredible that you are recording this at 7 a.m. in Melbourne, when I would never get up at 7 a.m. to do my, even my own podcast. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. I've got, I've got my coffee. I've had my cereal. I'm all good. I don't get up at 7 a.m. anyway, oh, well, <laughs> unless soccer's happening, but that's a different story. So, first of all, this is going to be listened to by a lot of people, firstly, in Australia. So if you're in Australia, you probably know Jason's story. If you're in North America, I'd be, you'd be forgiven for not knowing Jason and why he's on this show. So I'll give Jason a brief chance to explain who he is and what his story is before I go into a little more detail about why I'm very excited to do this show. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, your audience would be forgiven for not knowing a lot about Australian rules football either. It's a very uniquely Australian sport, but it is probably the biggest sport that we have here um, it's, it's attended by, you know, the, the grand final uh, is attended by upwards of 100,000 people. Um, you know, games can draw up to, you know, 90,000 people for a normal home and away game here in Australia. It's heavily watched. It's heavily loved. It's, a, um, it's unique in terms of the, the rules are, are unlike, um, you know, American football, unlike soccer, unlike rugby. Um, there's a lot of tackling. There's no um, sort of protective wear that people... Um, use um, in the way that they do with American football and um, it's a sport that I played uh, ever since I was a kid growing up here in, in Australia I'm from I'm from Melbourne and I yeah I, I love the game um, and uh, but yeah growing up I, I realized that I was gay uh, around the age of, of 12 or 13 but but made the decision to hide my sexuality from my teammates. I didn't feel like um, it was the kind of environment that would be welcoming um, because of the, the language that people used, um, the attitudes. And so, um, you know, I, I made it to a, a semi-professional sort of level of playing the game, but I actually dropped out um, around the age of 17 and, and but continued playing kind of amateur Australian rules football. And uh, it was in uh, 2012, so quite, quite a... Quite a few years ago now um that i made the decision to come out publicly and in doing so i became the first australian rules player at any level of the game to ever come out in the in the mainstream media and um it made quite a big splash um at the time it wasn't something that i thought would make quite the impact because i i didn't play at the elite level um you know like your version of the nfl um i was more of a junior level player but in the absence of any elite players talking about this issue, my story kind of filled that void. And, you know, I was on all of the um, nightly network television across Australia and um, 
uh, it coincided with a campaign that I launched on um, change.org, which you're probably familiar with in, in the US, um, where I, I was calling on the AFL, the Australian Football League, to do more to tackle homophobia uh, within the sport. And, um, you know, that had a, a number of wins over over a number of years. Um, you know, we were able to lobby the AFL to screen anti-homophobia ads on the big screen at matches, to invest in education on LGBTI inclusion for AFL players and um, and we uh, launched uh, Pride the Pride Cup, um, which is a nonprofit organization helping uh, community sporting clubs to hold Pride games and Pride themed events, and um, to also access education for players and coaches to challenge homophobia. So that that's my um, last um, thirty years in a, in a nutshell around um, LGBTI inclusion in sport, but. You know, very happy to delve into more detail um, throughout the chat. We will be delving into more detail throughout the chat. Now, I need to explain why we're even doing an AFL-focused podcast in particular, although it doesn't matter what continent that this is, we're talking about or the sport. These issues are universal. Jason just said something we've heard on this show probably 16 times, and you'll hear many more times in future episodes. So why am I doing a show on AFL? So the first reason is the pandemic has screwed up a lot, it's also screwed up my sleeping schedule, which means that when I'm not falling asleep at 2.30 in the morning and there's a figuring a chance to watch something, I'm going to be like, okay, what's on? Reruns, reruns, re oh, AFL. What? Uh, okay, let's watch this and see how unique it is. And it was, um, of course, chaos. I really enjoyed the <laughs> chaos element of it. Now, for some people here who are listening in Australia and you, you will not understand what I'm about to say, but if you were listening to this, in the U.S., you definitely will. It's got a little Pac-12 after dark energy. Really, really enjoy that, especially at 2.30 in the morning during the middle of the pandemic. That's part one. Part two, I believe, uh, Jason, you'll know who I'm talking about. Talk about Australian uh, broadcaster Corbin Mendelmiss, sports broadcaster on ABC Radio. I think you know who he is. I would assume so, at least. Um, yes, yes. Yes. So he came out about a week before I did a couple years ago. Uh, and so we became pretty good friends, and he and I have talked a lot about uh, the, the game a little bit as I've started watching more of it at 2.30 in the morning because I can't fall asleep. So he's been a good friend and taught me a lot. And the third reason, and this is a very important reason, let's be fair. It's a bunch of hot Australian guys running around in tank tops and short shorts. <laughs> you think I'm going to say no to that? <laughs> Look, it's a great spectator sport, that's for sure. I'm not sure if you have you heard of Mason Cox. He's actually an American I Australian at, I rules footballer. I did, look at, I did look it up. And uh, yeah, he played at Oklahoma State apparently. He did in basketball, and yes. um, yeah, made made the switch to um, to AFL. There's been a few Americans and um, who, who have done that in their time. Um, it's yeah, well, they're, they're big stars. They come to college football and they end up becoming punters. Yeah, they, they kind of goes the other way around. We've had a few AFL players um, make their way over to the states. They can they can kick a, a long way. Uh, yeah, they can. That's I, I've noticed that, and that's why they all become punters. Hashtag punters are people too. So those are the three reasons why I am doing this show, because I find it really interesting, this sport and just the overall culture in Australia when it comes to this, and want to figure out how different is it to North America, how much progress has actually been made, or is progress lip service. And so I'll get you, Jason, because you're going to know more, but I want to get to that later. But I first want to talk about your life. You play this sport in Melbourne. It's the biggest sport in Melbourne. You could, as you said, it's probably the biggest sport in Australia. And you... Talk about the culture and the language you heard. Mm -hmm. How difficult was it to go through what you went through 
just in general, the sport you love, the sport that is a huge part of you, but then you go in there and you feel, I can't actually play this sport because I don't feel accepted in this space. Yeah, it was really hard. I, I, when I first um, realized that I was gay because of the, you know, the, the society that I'd been brought up with and, you know, in a very masculine world, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be gay. Um, I thought that when people use the word gay to mean bad or stupid or disgusting or weak, that that's what they would think of me. And I thought, you know, my friends would discard me. I thought my family would be disappointed in me. And so, you know, I, you know, even it took me a while to come to terms with it myself because I, I was really resistant to this idea that I would be gay. I thought I was hoping it would be something that I could fight that I could, or, or even if I couldn't, I just made a promise to myself that I would never act on these feelings, you know, that I would marry a woman and have kids and do all the things society accepts, uh, expects, of me and no one should ever know this. And, and that was, that was awful. Um, I spent a number of years trying not to be gay and, um, I, I quickly learned that it was something that I couldn't fight. And, uh, you know, that, that was a, a pretty dark time. You know, there were, there were, there were times when I even, even contemplated taking my own life at the age of 15, thinking that that might be easier than dealing with the shame or the embarrassment of people finding out about my sexuality. Um, and, but you know, my, my story is a positive one because, you know, I eventually, um, in the end, people didn't think less of me. Um, you know, my friends accepted me and my, my family accepted me. And, and I came to the realization that if I only live one time, I may as well, you know, do what makes me happy, be who I am and, and not worry so much about what other people think about me. Um, but the football club, always was that one environment that I felt that I would never be accepted for being gay. Um, the culture there, it's not just, you know, the use of the word gay in a derogatory sense, but homophobic slurs were kind of part and parcel of the um, culture growing up, whether it was coming from over the fence or coming from the opposition or from my own teammates, from my coach, words like fag and poof and homo. Uh, and so that was what I thought people in that environment would think of me. I thought I'd be kicked off the team. No one would want to play with me, um, you know, on their team that they would think I was, um, you know, disgusting. And so I spent um, years uh, hiding my sexuality from my teammates, but I was out in other parts of my life. Um, and I guess to give you an idea of what that was like, you know, I would, second guess everything that I said and did I, I actually didn't really get involved in conversations with my teammates about relationships or what I was doing on the weekends and it probably limited the kinds of friendships um, and bonds that I could have developed with my teammates um, you know when I was younger because I was always hiding a big part of my life but I had uh, made a promise to myself that if I was ever asked about it um, that I wouldn't lie um, you know, lying hadn't gone so well in the past. Um, when it came to making up stories about girls, firstly, I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, and, you know, secondly, it's exhausting to maintain fabricated stories um, with all the follow-up questions that come. But um, uh, I can actually remember really clearly that the first time that it came up in conversation with one of my teammates, um, I, was, um, I was 22 years old at the time. And um, one of my teammates had broken up with his girlfriend and, um, you know, I knew both of them. So I asked him what had happened and how he was doing. And after a bit of back and forward, he put it back onto me and he's like, Oh, you know, what about you, Bawley? 
um, aren't you seeing someone at the moment? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing someone. And my teammate said, well, what's his name? And my heart just started beating really fast. I thought maybe he was testing me or it could be a joke. And so I just said, uh, his name is James. And my teammate said, oh, well, has he come to any football games yet? And I was like, no, he hasn't. And he said, oh, well, you should, you should bring him down. It would be really great to meet him. And this just felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And one by one conversations like this kept happening in my football club where my teammates would kind of reach out to me to say, you know, we know that you're gay and it's, it's really not a big deal to us. And, you know, it turned out all of the, the fears that I had about how my teammates were going to react to me weren't realized. Um, part of me felt silly for thinking like, you know, that I'd had to hide it for so long and the extent that I had gone to try and hide it. Um, but, you know, it, it, it turned out that the, a lot of the homophobic language and behavior that was coming from my teammates growing up wasn't actually coming from a place of, of hatred towards gay people, but rather it was coming from, I guess, ignorance, not understanding what they were saying or the impact that that would be having, just doing what they thought they had to do to be manly and masculine in that environment. And, you know, it turned out after 10 years, there was only so much that I could hide and, and they, they'd figured it out. Um, one of the guys who I played with um, went to my university where I, I had, you know, been out to some people and they found out. But, um, you know, it, I'd, at that point, like I'd never felt more part of the football club than I had in my whole life because, you know, I could be myself. I could talk about anything. I could bring my partner to stuff. I, I played better as a result. I looked forward more to games and to training than I ever had before. Um, you know, we won a grand final um, the year after that. And so that was, um, you know, and, and I guess reflecting on this moment, um, you know, thinking back to, when I was young and, and learning that young people who are same-sex attracted are um, in Australia up to six times more likely to contemplate suicide um, when compared to the rest of the community and thinking about, you know, when I was going through that, if I had have known of such thing as a gay footballer and if I had have known that he could be out to his teammates and that it wouldn't be a big deal, that they would accept him, that that would have made a really big difference to me. And so that was my motivation to um, share my story in the media and to, and to launch the campaign that I did. Well, we'll get to a lot of this, but I, the first comment I'll make is uh, this doesn't sound any different than what I've heard talking about other sports, North American sports. Like this stuff Look, apparently doesn't absolutely. matter with the accent. It really doesn't. I think when it comes to male team sports, it doesn't matter what sport, it doesn't matter what country, it is, it is just an identical culture and we have the same problems with homophobia. And so, you know, hopefully in the end, it could also be the same solutions to, to improving it. Well, it's interesting because one of the things I think about, which is, is the, uh, the, not just the language of it, but where it comes from. And you, and you talked about it a little bit. I think it comes from just the idea that, you know, this is what they think they have to do to get by. Like mm -hmm. it's an assimilation place. You know, it's all about the team. Individuals not so much wanted its team, and then when they figure that out, that's the story. And I've heard I've heard that story many many times, and I guess I'm going to hear it again. Uh, and for you, I think that's something we, we kind of learn. It's like these people aren't necessarily homophobic; like they actually hate gay people. They just they didn't know any better. It's it's not just ignorance. I think of just what the words. It's it's ignorance of just the fact that 
you know, this is not the language we should use because that's just the language that people around them use. And it got passed down from generation to generation. And this is the first generation where people are like, well, actually, no, we shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's not hard sometimes to, to challenge people when they're using that language. I mean, it, you know, we have similar problems in schools where, where young people might use the word gay to mean bad or stupid. And so, you know, if someone says, oh, that book's gay, I don't want to read it. And you say, well, what do you mean? Are you saying that that book is attracted to other books of the same sex? <laughs> and then, you know, it's like they, that's not what they're thinking when they're using that language. And, and I think the other thing, I guess, with sport particularly and and young men is sort of the the expectations around masculinity and what it means to be manly. You know, we're playing sport. It's really important to be seen as, you know, strong and sort of all of these typical idealistic sort of masculine qualities at, at the same time, you know, to show weakness, to show emotion, to show vulnerability, you know, is kind of is frowned upon. And that brings with it a whole lot of other challenges in and of itself. Um, when it comes to you know men's mental health, let alone um, the fact that there's no room within that sort of culture and mindset for you know homosexuality um, on on the one hand. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny when I hear this, and I think, boy, and when they talk about the changes that need to be made, and you, you say it, and I've heard it from other people in other sports who are dealing with the same things you are. It's so fascinating because like it shouldn't be this similar every single place I go to and every single sport I talk to, whether it's the NHL or the ice hockey in North America, which is, I've said, it's still the most homophobic sport that I've seen. Uh, And now we get to this sport and you go like, well, this story seems almost identical. It's just truly amazing. And it just, it shouldn't be like that. But then you realize (laughs) that it just is. And it's, and it's, it, it just it makes me laugh sometimes because now we're, we're changing it and the and the pace of change you could argue could be different but my goodness isn't that just crazy when you think about it, is. it and when you think about it, even you know in, in non-english speaking cultures as well it's it's very similar um even when you've got kind of you know you, you could say here in australia you know we have quite um a, a liberal accepting views towards um, towards gay people in general in, in broader society. We're not as religious as as um, I would say you know parts of America are, um, but still, when it comes to sport, um, you know it's not a religion thing that is driving the homophobia. I think it is it is ignorance, and I think it is you know partly um, the the culture around masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's just it is again. Amazing how this translates. So I'll get more in now to, I guess you personally, what was mm-hmm. the moment that made you say, well, just being gay and being out in my space was not enough. I have to do more because I know there's going to be other people out there like me who are dealing with what I'm dealing with and they are, you know, not as fortunate. So what was the story uh, when you saying, okay, I got to now do much more on a bigger level than just be being out is enough. Look, I mean, you might think my, my story is one where, you know, I've, I've just, you know, there's a, a light has switched where I've decided that I'm going to make some really big change. But I think like part of it was chance. And I think part of it was seizing on an opportunity when it when when that chance happened. Um, like I um, I didn't think that it was a big deal that I was gay and played, you know, sport at, a, at an amateur semi-professional level. 
um, you know, because I wasn't playing at that elite level. Um, but, you know, there were other people around me who, who said, actually, we think this is a big deal. And there was a moment in um, the Australian rules football um, sort of moment where there had been an incident, like a high-profile incident, where a player um, was heard, you know, picked up by the mic of the umpire, um, issuing a homophobic slur to another player. And, um, but he had gotten off on a lot lesser penalty than a player would for issuing a racist slur to another player. And so there was a lot of commentary happening around the game of football about the use of homophobic slurs and whether or not that is fair game or not. And at the time, the Australian Football League had signed up to a campaign about saying no to homophobia, um, you know, all the way back in 2012. Um, but I was kind of looking at that and thinking that there was a lot more that they could do than just signing up to a campaign. And um, I was actually approached by the, the founders of change.org here in Australia around this time because they wanted to do a campaign to get the AFL to do more to tackle homophobia, but they wanted, they wanted a face, they wanted a story to really grab people's attention and they knew that if they didn't have that story that you know it would just be seen as the lgbt community trying to impose its agenda on the afl they needed someone from the inside to be able to speak with authority authority and authenticity about what it's actually like to be on the receiving end of homophobic slurs because this incident that happened in the afl it was a straight player um, issuing a homophobic slur to another straight player and so people are being like, well, what's the big deal? Like, he's not actually gay, so no one's offended, right? And well, so, he could be gay. We don't know that. He very well, well could he, be. Well, he said he wasn't, you know, as part, of the, as part of the commentary that happened afterwards. He said, well, I wasn't really that offended because I'm not actually gay. And it's like, well, that's, that's not the point. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it's about the people who are listening <laughs> and, and young people who are gay thinking that uh, this is not an environment for me and so I'm not going to play this game. Um, or I'm not going to feel comfortable to come out. It's it's all of the other people around who might be in the closet. And so that was um, the opportunity that I had. They they invited me to share my story with the media and kind of helped me tee that up. Like I didn't know a thing about media at the time, but they were able to organize an interview with like the major sort of broadsheet newspaper and sort of did a sit-down interview. Um, you know, it was in the paper and then um, uh, I, I thought maybe that would be it. Like it wouldn't get any more media sort of pickup, but... Um, you know, sure enough, that, that day of training, all of the camera crews from every network um, rocked up to, to football practice. They wanted to get some shots. They wanted to get some interviews. They actually um, also wanted to interview my teammates. And um, that was a really interesting story because I hadn't, you know, briefed them on that. Um, they, they didn't, um, you know, well, I, I had... I had actually spoken to the, the club before I did this. I think that's an important point to make um, that I, you know, I didn't want to speak on behalf of them. I didn't want to distract us from, you know, playing football or anything because, you know, I, you, you made that point earlier about, you know, there's no individual in a sport. It's all about the team and, and someone coming out might be seen as doing, being a bit individualistic and Would you be just, just distracting. Um... Yeah, you just said the magic word. It's like I'm talking about hockey just with an Australian accent. It's it's crazy how amazing this translates. Mm -hmm. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah, yeah. And and look, my my I approached the club with this idea, and and to my surprise, they actually told me to to go for it. They said, you know, we know 
this is something you're passionate about. We know that you and the other guys can handle, you know, any extra attention or what happens and, and, you know, you've got our support. And so it it was really with that blessing that I told my story, but like, you know, when, when the media rocked up, like I hadn't really had any media training. My teammates hadn't had much media training, you know, we're not professional players. Um, but I was, you know, it was so touching when one of my teammates was like, yeah, no worries. You know, I'll talk to the press and just strutted out in front of the media scrum and, you know, said some of the most perfect cliches that I couldn't have written better for him. You know, he's like, oh, you know, when we cross that line, we're all one team. You know, I think a lot of other players could take out a leaf out of Jason's book. You know, he's a great guy and we support him, you know, and it was just, um, it was a really special moment. And I think that like my story, for me, my teammates are the heroes of my story because, um, you know, they were able to be the role models for other straight men and allies to understand that, um, you know, saying no to homophobia doesn't make you less of a man. Um, you know, it means that you're a good guy. It means that you, you know, can stick up for your mates, you know, and I think these are sort of the masculine ideals that people do aspire to. And, um, and so when I was, say, I, I was lucky enough to be invited to lead um, the Melbourne's Pride um, March, um, like Pride Parade, um, back in 2013. But, you know, again, the heroes of that story were my teammates um, who came in March by my side. And we also had, for the first time, elite-level AFL players come and march in, in that event. Um, we had two players, one who had a gay sister Another who was an ambassador for a mental health organization, Brock McLean and Daniel Jackson, came and marched in Pride March. And, you know, it really, uh, you know, sent a really great signal out to the community to see straight men um, taking part in this event as allies. Um, it kind of gave permission, I think, for other young men to know that they too can say no to homophobia. And, and that this is a good, a good thing. And now it's become your career's work outside of the politics. I'm going to try not to focus too much on the politics because you don't have all day uh, for this particular interview. <laughs> and that's another interview entirely. And I yeah. would best be served leaving that to somebody who knows more about Australian politics than I do. But in terms of starting a Pride Cup, which is dealing with just eliminating all sorts of homophobia in all Australian sport. I mean, mm-hmm. but, I mean you, you focus on AFL because you played it. You know, like, what have you seen in terms of progress? Has there been demonstrative progress made in doing the things that you feel like need to be seen? Has that happened? Or because when I get the sense reading articles from you, I get the sense that there's still a lot more that you think could be done. And, like, what they've done is good, but it's like, well, you didn't do anything beforehand. You know, that kind of, like, we're grading yeah. the curve. We're starting at a low base <laughs> when it comes to this too. issue. Yeah, um, we're starting on a really low base when it comes to attitudes and understanding of this issue. So just doing anything makes a big difference. Like you, it, you go from zero to to a hundred pretty quickly in terms of, um, you know, getting getting people on board. But it doesn't. It's also not going to happen overnight. Um, we know that you know the sport is huge in this country. There's so many sporting teams. There's so many people playing sport. There's so many you know, different sporting communities that it's going to take a lot of work. And and um, to, to give your listeners an understanding of sort of where Pride Cup uh, came from, um, this was all, all back in 2014. It was actually my um, my teammates and my coach who, who kind of came up with the idea. They wanted to, you know, th- theme a game, uh, one of our regular home away games around celebrating, you know, diversity and inclusion for LGBT people. And, um, you know, they came up with sort of 
uh, uh, wearing incorporating rainbow into the uh, into the uniforms. Um, they created a rainbow um, like markings on the on the field on the ground um, instead of like a white line. There was a rainbow <laughs> line to to mark like the 50 meter line away from away from the goals and. Um, conveniently in AFL, it's actually an arc. It's so it formed a perfect rainbow. Um, and, you know, that, that symbol of inclusion and acceptance um, within sport to, to send a message to, to, you know, our community, for, for players, for coaches, to know that they don't have to choose between being themselves and playing the game that they love and, and using my story as the example for that. And, um, you know, we... Um, put this game on and it, like it was amazing how the whole community sort of rallied around it you know I'm from a small town um, and we had um, like four times the size of a normal crowd um, turned up for the game um, we had all the local businesses in the street you know put up rainbow signs that weekend on the main street of the of the town um, and we had, we interviewed people who came to the game and a lot of them, you know, identified as LGBT and, and said that it was the first kind of community sporting game that they'd ever been to and that the first time they'd ever felt safe and welcome in that environment. And, um, you know, that, that was special in and of itself. But I think that the really important work that we did was we worked in partnership with the AFL um, and like the local council and some mental health organizations to create education programs that were actually delivered to all of the players on both of the teams who were playing in that game, not just my team, but also the opposition team. And we had, you know, the winner of the game was presented with a pride cup. So it became sort of like an annual thing and it was a way to engage the opposition team as well. And we designed an education program um, to help, uh, the players understand what this rainbow was about. Like it's one thing you like just putting a rainbow on things isn't going to solve the problem of homophobia. You need to actually engage with people, use storytelling, use real world examples, show research to help them understand the impacts of homophobia, how it affects the LGBT community. Um, you know, the link with, with suicide and mental health um, to really understand that what they're doing and, and their role as allies and how they can make a difference. And so um, that w it was really important that every Pride Cup that was run also included education for, for the players and for the coaches. Um, and we've actually just had some research released um, just uh, a few weeks ago, actually. It just got picked up by The Guardian um, that the, the education sessions themselves and, and the Pride Cups, um, we found that for clubs, and, and, and I, I guess I'd also have to say that, you know, since that first game in 2014, um, you know, other, other leagues and other games have sort of picked it up, and we now have over 150 sort of Pride Cups happening annually across community sport. We have elite-level sports like the AFL and the Ice Hockey League here in Australia have done Pride games. Um, uh, and what we've found in terms of the research is that clubs – that have engaged or done a Pride Cup or a Pride game um, have about uh, the the use of homophobic language in those clubs has halved um, compared to clubs that have never been involved in one of these games. And so um, for, for, you know, a social change, behaviour change sort of program, it has been remarkable in terms of the, the shift that we've seen. Um, but, you know, when you look at the the entire sporting universe here in Australia, in the world, you know, we haven't, we haven't scratched the surface, but we have showed that we've got a model that works. And if we can take it to scale, I think we can 
make a really big difference. One of the things that I hear a lot about Pride games, because we have them here, they're called Pride Nights, but it's like random Tuesday night games. Like in the NBA, it could be like the Sixers against the Pacers, and it is mm -hmm. whatever. You know, and one of my friends calls it pink washing, and mm. because, or rainbow washing in the cases you said it uh, pretty well. So you're, you've done the, this is a Pride game where we can celebrate what's going on but we actually are doing the legwork behind the scenes to make this happen. And I also wanted to point out, because it's important, this is not obviously high-level AFL. This is community semi-pro stuff and with what you did, and you got this amazing response. So it's clear that what you've done at some level has actually created meaningful change. Well, we uh, started this at the community level, but it was the community level that inspired the elite level to take it on. And so we had the first sort of pride game or pride night, um, you know, at an AFL elite level in 2016. And it's now in its fifth year um, where, you know, there's two teams. It'd be great. You know, we, we'd love to roll it out to all of the teams. But, um, you know, it is important that you do do the legwork. It's important that you engage with the ambassadors of the game, the players and the coaches to educate them, to help them be spokespeople for this cause. Um, and to also, you know, with all of the commentary that happens around the game, you know, the halftime break, the, the lead in that you're actually engaging with stories and real human um, perspectives as to why this issue matters. And so, you know, we've ensured that not just my story, but many stories of LGBT people involved in the game, whether as spectators, as umpires, as players, um, you know, are sharing their stories, talking about how much this night means to them, but also talking about the impact of homophobic language and why it's important to stand up against it. Um, if it wasn't for those things around the game that were also happening, then your general your general population will just be looking at it. It's just a bit of extra color, a bit of extra rainbow in the game. Or, so or what, as I like to know. call it, the same as Star Wars night, just with the rainbows. It, exactly. It, it, it's pointless and meaningless if if it doesn't have um, human stories and education and, and awareness sort of tied into it. And yeah, so I want to get now to this this point you were bringing up about they have a pride game every year, and I've learned about this doing extensive research trying to figure out what the hell I'm talking about. Because I can't come on this show sounding like an idiot with you on here. Uh, there is a Pride game every year. It's the, Now, unlike what I just mentioned, which is like Pride Night could be anything for any team at any time, this is the same fixture every year. It's St. Kilda and Sydney. And I actually, oddly enough, saw this game and then learned after the fact that it was the Pride game, although it was played behind closed doors because COVID. So it's interesting. So talk about, because I know you were part of uh, seeing that come to fruition, and to see an AFL game every year be marked as a Pride game with the same two teams. That's pretty impressive, all things considered, and it's very different than what my conception of Pride Night is. You know, it was a giveaway night for American sports. Uh, and that's, and that's it. And, now, and we'll talk about making it a whole bigger event than just one game a year in a bit. But for that, like, well, what does that mean when you see that there's these two teams who are actually willing to do this every single year, the same time that they play, to, to be out there and out in front and to take the lead on an issue like this and actually do stuff more than just saying, here, here's a rainbow 50-meter line, whatever the hell it is. Yeah, look, it meant a lot to the, to the two teams and, and credit to them. They have done the groundwork that is required to, to take this on and, and sort of lead on, on behalf of the LGBT community. Um, the uh, St. Kilda Football Club 
um, has, you know, had a presence in Pride March, um, a presence in a festival called Midsummer, which is like an LGBT arts and culture festival that happens here in Melbourne. And Sydney, uh, to their credit, you know, they're involved in the, the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. You know, they have a presence there. Both of these clubs are willing to do the groundwork and actually engage with the LGBT community to understand, you know, to understand them, to, to bring them in and create a safe space within their football clubs for that community. Um, you know, when, when we held the first Pride game back in 2016, you know, it was at a, at a stadium that holds, you know, 50,000 people. And we actually did a briefing for all of the security guards and the staff who work at the event. Um, to understand the game and the issues and all of them were wearing you know like a, a rainbow pride game sort of badge on their on their um, on their jackets for that game and, and for us this was about the fact that there were people coming along to this game who'd been invited in from the LGBT community who'd be attending their first ever live game of sport or AFL and we wanted them to know that you know that they were safe um, that, they, that if there was issues, that they could flag it with security. Um, you know, we, we worked on um, creating gender-neutral bathrooms for, you know, non-binary and trans and gender-diverse communities. Um, you know, that there, it wasn't just about putting rainbows on things, um, although that was, that was special and, and played a really important part of it. But it was about the stories that sat behind that and the, and the groundwork that was done and, and both of those clubs it's not just one night a year that they're engaged with the lgbt community it's sort of part of their diversity strategy um for for, for their their club's dna is to make sure that they're a club that is welcoming and inclusive to all people including the lgbt community there's a cynical part of me that says of course these clubs would want to advertise to gay men you know and and this community they're more often than not single a lot of them have decent paying jobs they have expendable income so you get them to go to a game hey look at that uh but anyway i have heard somebody say that before and it's and it's true on that point like i mean uh, i can see people be cynical and say you know if, uh, are they making money from this is that why they're doing it you know they're they're creating a rainbow line of merchandise people are buying that but like from my perspective, I'm I'm happy if it's a mutually beneficial arrangement. Like if you've got clubs, and and we found at a community level, clubs who have um, held a Pride Cup have actually opened up more sponsorship opportunities for them because businesses now want to support them, um, because of what they're doing. And businesses that had previously never thought that they would be, um, you know, wanting to sponsor a, a football club now want to because of this work that they're doing in the community. They're actually putting themselves out there as sort of good, um, you know, community citizens um, as sporting clubs. And if that's if that's creating positive returns for them um, financially or otherwise in terms of membership numbers, um, like I'm okay with that. Like, great. If, if you know, if that's an incentive for you. Um, and if that if that is a, if that is uh, something that happened as a result of it, then then great because as long as we're also you know seeing the returns or the receipts in terms of reduced levels of homophobia, more participation in the game from the LGBT community, more LGBT people feeling safe and welcome and included, you know, in this sport, then it's 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 mutually beneficial and everybody wins. That's it's a good point, and it, and that does kind of damp down your cynicism because I agree with you. Uh, companies right now love nothing more than to say we're diverse. Look at how we're supporting this, you know, for a press release and to get the good press, you know, kind of thing. But it does. But it, like, there, if it works the way that it should, it can be a mutually beneficial relationship. Mm -hmm. 
And look, I think the, 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 the gay community are good at seeing through that when it's transparently, um, you know, tokenistic and, 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 they, and they're not afraid to call it out. <laughs> um, I, I, but, I think they've gotten a lot of practice and we've gotten a yeah. lot of practice calling it out. Let's be mm -hmm. fair. So, and, and, it should, and it should be called out, you know, when it is tokenistic, when they're doing it to try and make a cheap buck. But if, if the organization can show their receipts and show the way that they're engaging with the community, I mean, at the Pride came, a portion of ticket sales were donated to a charity that supports LGBT youth. You know, there's the, you know, that that is the kind of thing that if someone says, well, you know, this is tokenistic, you can you can point to the, the very tangible difference that it's making to the community, then then, you know, it backs it up. And I'm glad to hear that it is not just, you know, doing it for the sake of having a giveaway night or whatever it is, because that that's that's like and we've talked on this show with other people about how can you make a Pride Night actually do what it's supposed to do other than, you know, giving out rainbow T-shirts. And that's and what you've described is exactly what I think a lot of like sporting organizations in this country should figure out how to do that. Now, I have to talk now because you mentioned before about doing an entire Pride round because this is just one game uh, every mm -hmm. year. And I, and I mentioned it because I actually, again, did research before I figured this out, because they have an indigenous round in the AFL to honor indigenous players in the league, which is great. I, I can't make many more comments on that other than just knowing the history that it happens. So the story with that goes, they have this round every year, and they have one big game every year that is the feature game of the, pri of, of the, excuse me, the indigenous round, which yeah. is Essendon in Richmond. So in my view, why couldn't then, and I know you support this, there be a pride round in June every year when we get back to normal after COVID goes away, hopefully, if the plague's not with us forever, and then make St. Kilda Sydney like the feature game of the weekend. And you have the designing of like jerseys, you have submission of ticket sales, you know, the situation mm -hmm. to these organizations. What is the reason why that can't happen? Because it seems like there's more willingness to make it happen. And I think, you know, when you're talking about it, like that would be a huge step because two clubs is great, but there's 18 of them in the AFL. And doing it all weekend would be something like even covering it in the same way that they cover the indigenous round, just watching some of that coverage. W like, wouldn't that be something pretty amazing after all that you started from? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and to be honest, that's, that's what we're working towards. Um, and and it, the indigenous round started with the Dreamtime game. It started with the game between Essendon and Richmond, and, and it took a number of years before all of the clubs and the AFL as the league sort of got on board to create something that was coordinated and had, you know, nine times the impact uh, of one game. And and I think that that's where we will ultimately, hopefully, get to with the AFL. I, I would have loved just to have been there sooner. I think COVID probably played a big role in disrupting, um, disrupting that, but... We now have um, uh, LGBTI fan groups, like supporter groups, at every single AFL club across the AFL. Um, so all of the you know, uh, LGBT fans are sort of coming together and organizing and, and being visible amongst their club, forming a relationship with their club, being an official supporter group, going to games together, you know, inviting people from the LGBT community into those clubs to come to games, to be involved in the sport. Um, and so through, you know, and we're, and we're networking, um, we've created the AFL Pride Collective, which is all of those different supporter groups sort of coming together to organize, to share ideas. And so, you know, we're lobbying the clubs and we're lobbying the AFL to make this a whole round. And I think that now that we have marriage equality here in Australia, it only, it only came in just a couple of years ago. We we're pretty late to the game um, on that sense. I think we're now that at a community 
level, we're, we're hopefully ready for it. But, I mean, even when you look at the Indigenous round in the AFL, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful event, but there's still a lot of cynicism and racism out there in the community, um, in, in the general Australian population who, who look at that, who we have a lot of work to do. And, and the Indigenous round is part of trying to reach out to them to combat racism in the game as well as celebrate the Indigenous players. But I guess there is a difference when you have the Indigenous round in celebrating Indigenous players. Like, you know, Aboriginal people in in Australia make up 2% of the population, but they're about 15% of the the players within the game. Um, Conversely, within the LGBT community, we have not a single openly gay male player at the elite level. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like if you're celebrating, who are you celebrating? The fact that they're all still in the closet? Like, well, you know, well, there's well, still a bit of work to, to do. I was about to get to that because this is a chicken or the egg situation. And we've heard that before with all sports at this level. But I now want to ask about this question because there are none at the AFL. Shock based on everything you've heard in this show. You really shouldn't be surprised that there are zero. Okay, there are zero that are out publicly. There is a 0% chance that there aren't any playing right now. That is statistically impossible. They're there. We just don't know who they are yet. So my thought about doing a pride round is, you know, and you talked about before what you were able to do at the smaller or the smaller scale, like even having just a supporters group talk about what it means to have a pride round or something like that, or having you go out and do what would this have meant to me when I was younger, when I heard this language and I didn't think I could play you get to the point where it shows that public show of support and then perhaps or maybe you get other people who are involved in the game to say this is what it means to me or you know somebody who have gay relatives or something like that and then that pushes maybe you get a former player to come out maybe you get a player at a younger at a smaller level to come out and then eventually like it's it's eventually leading to the big thing but I mean, like, I personally think you still have to do it because you're celebrating this community and saying not, oh, you've always been here, but we're welcoming you. This is a safe space. It's kind of going at it from the reverse angle of the indigenous game just to try to get the same effect, if you know what I, if you catch what I'm saying. Yeah, look, I absolutely agree with you. I think there is no, there's no reason why we shouldn't have a pride round now. Um, and, and we're working towards it. But I think the, I guess it's my, way of understanding why the AFL is slower to act on this as they had been to adopt rounds celebrating multicultural players and, and indigenous players. Um, because, you know, when the players are the stars of the game, you know, and, and they're, they're the, the, a lot of the reasons why people, people come and people pay attention. And so it, it's more tangible for, for the, you know, the viewing public to, to have that at, at the center point. Um, uh, but you know we, we will get there eventually with with AFL. Um, I, I think it's 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 a challenge for for players. Um, I can understand you know what they're going through. It was one thing for me when you know playing AFL wasn't my livelihood. It wasn't my career. There wasn't as much on the line for me when I decided to come out publicly. For AFL players, there's a lot more. There's a lot more pressure at the elite level um and you know even in across across all sports it's very rare to see someone come out um mid-career while they're still playing um often they'll come out once they've retired um or or in the case of you know michael sam they were already out before they got drafted um and you know i think that hopefully we're creating a culture and an environment that tells young people 
that they don't have to hide their sexuality and and maybe you know we will see our first openly gay player as someone who was drafted from from a, a junior level who who is already openly gay because of the work that we're doing um you know with pride cup and and education for community sports so is that what you think is going to happen it's not going to be somebody who's already playing it's going to be somebody who's out like at age 14 15 who gets good and then gets drafted Look, I mean, I couldn't say, but I mean, I look at the example here in Australia, which is that of um, Ian Thorpe, who was a swimmer, um, you know, who, you know, was got gold medal Olympic swimmer for Australia, who, you know, he talked about his experience of playing sport and, and hiding his sexuality. And for him, um, you know, w- when you're in the public eye, you kind of just simply by going along with people's assumptions, you've kind of, you've lied to people. Um, and, and to, to come out mid career or at the end of your career is, 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 is to tell people that you've, you've been, um, you know, uh, deceitful or lying, or that's how it feels internally. That's how you interpret it. And it's a huge weight that people carry. Um, and sometimes it's a weight that's too big um, to even to even lift. And and for Ian Thorpe, it was something that you know drove him to to alcoholism and and a lot of mental health issues post his career. But um, you know that's a glimpse inside the the struggle um, that people who are dealing with issues around their sexuality in the public eye in in the masculine world of of sport. Uh, are going through and so I don't, I don't envy them I have empathy for for that situation and that's probably the reason why I think we are more likely to see someone openly gay in that world who have actually come through and 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 lived in a more inclusive time at a time when they have role models um, when they can see the likes of you know Jason Collins or Michael Sam or Robbie Rogers um, who have existed and been accepted and celebrated for, for who they are. Um, you know, what a time to be alive, right? Like I didn't have that when I was a kid growing up and, um, I think it would have made a huge difference to me if I did. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we, we went from zero, absolute zero to a little bit less than absolute zero, which is obviously, as they say, progress, but we're progress on a, on a certain scale, of course. And that is, something you, you talk about but again like just just hearing your discussion it's like they went from where you went from with is hearing the language all the time and you being in the terrible position you were in to now we have a pride game uh, every year now there's a pride cup and there there is some semblance of progress it's not anywhere near enough obviously but progress has been made and you know we should celebrate the fact that and i know you celebrate the fact that there has been some made and and it gives you that motivation to keep wanting to do more yeah, definitely. And look, we're, we're getting more and more sports here in Australia uh, sign up, um, you know, every every year to wanting to be involved, to wanting to get on board. Um, the AFL being Australia's biggest sport have, have played a real leading role in that. And I think the other thing that's important to touch on is the role of women's sport in really pushing this issue forward um, here in Australia sort of only recently launched a national AFLW, uh, a women's competition, which is integrated with the men's competition in that the clubs have both a men's team and a women's team playing in the same Guernsey, the same club. Um, and that has done a lot for gender equality within the sport. Um, but it's also done a lot around visibility of LGBT issues because 
we do have openly gay women playing the sport um, and that has really, you know, paved the way for the men because those women similarly have, you know, they've been out and open about the fact that they're gay and the sky hasn't fallen in. You know, they haven't lost sponsorship deals. They haven't been, um, had a had a negative reaction from fans and haven't been sidelined by their club. And, and I think it has shown that we are in a time uh, now where a lot of the fears that people have about how they might be um, received are, are, are mostly in their head. Um, I think people these days will be accepted. And um, the fact that we can have, you know, openly gay women playing the game, um, I think, you know, is showing the men that it's possible as well. It is such a different issue, women being out in sports versus men being out in sports. There's the masculinity aspect of it. There's so many different angles that we could go with that. But it is true that now you see women are able to play this sport and be out. And, of course, one of the best soccer players in the world, women's soccer players in the world, is also out, Sam Kerr. So, again, it's, it's, not, it's not uncommon. But it's so different, again, between the men and the women. And that's something I think you've noticed. Like, to deal with this for male sports is so different than for, for women. And I, we've talked about this on the show, and we'll continue to talk about it, because I think it's really important to say that these are almost two separate issues, you know. And, and that's I think the is. Yeah, like, I mean, how I would characterize it is, is I feel that, like, women, uh, they deal with the opposite stereotype um, that men have to deal with within sport, but can be also very damaging and can, and can be problematic for, for gay women in sport as well. I mean, the stereotype that gay men don't or can't play sport is very pervasive and as well as the stereotype that all women who play rough contact sports must be lesbians um you know both are not true there are gay men who play sport there are straight women who play sport but both are damaging in terms of people not feeling like they can be themselves in in those environments and there have been a lot of women um, within the AFL who, you know, when the league first went public, a lot of them went back into the closet. A lot of them worried and deleted photos off their social media profiles of their partners because they were, they were scared that this wouldn't be palatable to a national audience, that, you know, parents won't want their daughters to play the game if they know that lesbians play it, you know. And so the, the pride game and the pride movement within sport, I think, is just as important for women as it is for men. We need a space where everyone feels comfortable to be who they are and can be celebrated. And I think the men can learn a lot from the, the, the work of, of women's sport and, and the visibility of, of openly gay female athletes, even though those cultures kind of are coming from opposite ends of the culture spectrum. True. So, unfortunately, we have to end this very shortly, which is the same because we could go on and talk about this forever. But I want to talk about what's next for you. What do you want to be the next step for what you do and the next step, not just to the AFL, but all sports in Australia on this issue? And where do you see yourself going with this? Um, look, I mean, you, you did mention very briefly that I ran for parliament and that's because, you know, I, I, I do, you know, LGBT inclusion is a big passion of mine. But, you know, there's also lots of other issues that I care about, like, you know, taking strong action on on climate change, for example, and, and social justice issues. And so running for parliament was a great way for me to talk about all the other issues that I, that I also care about. But, you know, I'm, a, I'm the co-founder and director of, of Pride Cup Australia. Um, we are just on the cusp of, of really making this big here. We've got plans to expand into New Zealand. Um, we've got a Kiwi on our, on our board. Um, you know, we've also got 
um, you know, trans athletes um, getting involved as well and ensuring that issues around trans and gender diverse inclusion are also part of the conversation that we're having here in Australia. So, you know, we've got big things planned. We want to continue to expand at the grassroots level and the elite level. Um, and, you know, ultimately, we, we want to we, we create a world where LGBT people feel included and accepted. And, and we think that sport is actually the vehicle that can help us get there. Mm -hmm. So tell everybody where they can find you and to follow you. Sure. Well, I mean, look, Pride Cup is um, pridecup.org.au. Or if you're looking for me on social media, my, my handle is at JasonBallAU. It was great to have you, Jason. Wish we could have had you for more. And hopefully in the future, we'll be talking about uh, more about amazing athletes in Australia and all around the world coming out thanks to the work you're doing. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you.